You're listening to The Diplomats Podcast on Asian geopolitics. As always, I'm your host, Ankit Panda from New York City. And this is Prashant Parmaswaran from Washington, D.C. Welcome back, Prashant. Thanks. It's good to have you back. Um, a lot happened while you were uh, you were away, as usual. Uh, I think there's yeah. a bit of a trend with uh, vacations, I guess, for both of us, uh, that things keep happening in Asia. But mm-hmm. um, I'm really glad to have you back because we haven't talked about Southeast Asia uh, in, a, in a few episodes, at least. Um, and I think the way we're going to do this episode is we'll split it into two parts and talk about two recent, um, well, one recent important development and another that's sort of been a longer term thing in the region that we haven't taken stock of in a while on the podcast. So it'll probably make sense to talk about, too. So uh, the first thing that we're going to talk about on this episode is the recent assurance uh, given by U.S. Secretary of State Mike Pompeo to the Philippines, actually right after the failed uh, Hanoi summit with uh, Donald Trump and Kim Jong-un, Pompeo flew off to the Philippines, and some people that weren't following this were wondering, well, why isn't he flying off to South Korea or Japan to brief them on what happened at the summit? But he was dealing with another important alliance that was seeing a bit of trouble. Uh, And, you know, we can't say that the alliances with South Korea and Japan are necessarily in perfect shape either. Uh, But in the Philippines, there had been a talk in um, December from the defense uh, secretary to... uh, review and potentially, if necessary, scrap the 1954 Mutual Defense Treaty between the two countries. So Pompeo went there and he gave the Philippines an important assurance. Um, So we'll talk about that and uh, we'll talk a bit about uh, the quadrilateral, always a favorite topic for our readers at The Diplomat, uh, that nebulous grouping of four countries, the United States, Japan, Australia, and India, and what that group is up to and a few recent comments made by the commander of a U.S. Pacific, sorry, Indo-Pacific Command. I'm still not used to saying that. Um, (laughs) But um, Prashant, I guess uh, tell us a bit about what exactly the problem was with the mutual defense treaty that made Pompeo's trip and his clarification necessary. I guess like the 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 issue is I mean it's part historical and part contemporary, right? So the historical issue is that even though the US and the Philippines have this mutual defense treaty where it's set out a serious set of commitments on the part of both sides um, and specific scenarios where the United States would come to the defense of the Philippines, as with many alliance agreements, there's been doubts about how exactly this would manifest itself in practice. Um, and that's particularly with respect to the South China Sea. So you you saw that um, in the 1990s and then another wave of it in the 2000s, where essentially the Philippines has been asking the United States a basic question. You know, what would this alliance effectively mean if, let's say, China or, or another country were to infringe on the Philippine claims or a Philippine vessel might be attacked? What would the United States do in response, and what would how would that how would the alliance respond? So the United States um, has been very ambiguous about what it's doing with respect to this and what it has done. Uh, there's been a reassurance on on uh, reassurances in private, but also reassurance in public. The publicized one, the latest one, was during the Clinton administration, where the United States effectively said that this would effectively cover um, South China Sea scenarios, a variety of South China Sea scenarios. But the reality is that since the Clinton administration up to the present, the South China Sea situation and the U.S.-Philippine alliance have taken a very vast, uh, significant array of changes since then. So it makes it has made sense for the United States to clarify that to the Philippines, but that clarification has not been coming. We talked about this previously in the podcast, for example, with respect to the distinction between 
the Obama administration giving that assurance to Japan with respect to the Senkakus in the East China Sea, but it did not do a similar thing very pointedly mm -hmm. with respect to the Philippines and the right. South China Sea. So the fact that Pompeo has now gone to the Philippines and provided this assurance is itself a very significant move. But, you know, as I pointed out, I wrote a piece for us earlier this week suggesting that the move is very significant in and of itself because this is something the United States has been hesitant to do. But the effective significance of it remains to be seen because if you actually look at the language of the treaty and what he's actually said, there's not a lot of specifics in there about how the United States would actually react in a particular scenario. And there's all these doubts about the U.S.-Philippine alliance that have less to do with what the United States is doing and more to do with what the Philippines is saying and doing under Rodrigo Duterte. So that part hasn't really been addressed. Mm -hmm. And I think that's really the big question and, and where we're at. Yeah, I mean, I guess a lot of the problems that alliances in general have today are political in nature, um, mm -hmm. especially when it comes to these assurances. Um, and I think, you know, this is a great example of that. So I'll just I'll just read out the assurance uh, or just Pompeo's exact words. Uh, so he says the following in uh, in Manila uh, just a few weeks ago. As the South China Sea is part of the Pacific, any armed attack on Philippine forces, aircraft, or public vessels in the South China Sea will trigger mutual defense obligations under Article 4 of our Mutual Defense Treaty. So that language is careful, um, and Article 4 of the treaty does, you know, caveat for the constitutional mm -hmm. processes in each country, which, of course, everybody's favorite, uh, Rodrigo Duterte, um, picked up on, and he sort of poo-pooed this assurance, right? Just days later, he, he talked about how the U.S. Congress would get in the way, and, you know, is this really something that we can, we can really trust? So, uh, you know, right, right there, I mean, just a few days later, we already had exactly the kind of things that you were just mentioning and that you mentioned in your article, that, uh, you know, the political problems at the core of the alliance, I think, um, I think still still remain a question i have for you uh you know so last year we were both in the audience at the shangri-la dialogue when um jim mattis was asked by a participant uh, at that conference from the philippines to provide insurance and he like you said he was ambiguous he hedged he said i don't want to you know i don't want to take really mm -hmm. any position i guess he wasn't anticipating that question at the time but you know here we are less than a year later and the u.s has decided to make this assurance and i know you follow this beat pretty closely in washington but do you have a sense of what happened behind the scenes on the American side to really get us from, you know, Mattis a year ago, kind of wishy-washy, like handling this, to Pompeo just straight up giving up, um, giving the Philippines the assurance that they've been looking for for years? I, I think there's there's two parts to that. One is um, what's happening with respect to U.S. policy, and one is what there's what's respecting what's uh, developing with respect to the Philippines. So. With respect to the Philippines, I mean, there's been a lot of increasing anxiety here in Washington about what the Philippines has been doing. So both in terms of what they're doing with respect to China, which is also which is not just economic, by the way, it's, you know, they're, they're doing Coast Guard cooperation. They're talking about exercises. This is real stuff here uh, that raises questions about the U.S.-Philippine alliance and also Lorenzana's uh, sort of very direct articulation of what he said privately before he's been saying publicly about the need to review the alliance. Is really useful for the Philippines. Um, so that's the Philippine part of it. The U.S. policy part of it is that I, I think on the part of U.S. policymakers, there's been a recognition that if there is to be a building out of this so-called free and open Indo-Pacific vision, it, it needs to happen with this line, which um, has been characterized with respect to the contrast between the Obama administration and the Trump administration, which is that under the Obama administration, a lot of partnerships had emerged with respect to Vietnam, Singapore, et cetera, et cetera. But 
the alliances had kind of withered or there were questions about it with respect to Thailand and the Philippines in particular, the two, two treaty alliances. And that the Trump administration, one of its legacy items has been to right the wrongs of these alliance relationships. And so you've seen efforts by the Trump administration to do this. Like it's not just the U.S.-Philippine alliance and the mutual defense treaty, but you saw, for example, the Trump administration very pointedly address the issue of the return of the Balangiga Bells, Mm-hmm. which is tied to a deadly massacre that the U.S. was involved with the Philippines that Duterte has brought up. So the, Philipp- the, the United States has been trying to address very directly some of these Philippine concerns because it realizes that the free and open Indo-Pacific strategy means very little if it doesn't get its alliances right. So I think that's kind of where we're at with respect to the situation. But as you brought up before, I think it's a really important point, right? This is not just about the United States and the Philippines. It's about the fact that we have these um, political questions with respect to alliances that get beyond these very like nuanced security discussions and, and treaty specifics that we talked about. We talked about on this podcast, you know, previously about the U.S. South Korea alliance and the fact that, you know, we have a very nuanced discussion about the renegotiation of the terms of the alliance and costs and things like that. But the reality is that, I mean, it it reflects broader questions in Asia about. The Trump administration's Asia approach, right? It has done some very good things, like, for example, raising very direct questions about China and also addressing issues such as, you know, what is the U.S. economic uh, sort of game in Asia and how we can get that piece of its strategy together. But it's also raising a lot of questions about the United States' presence in the region, right? Mm-hmm. So that dynamic, I think, is evident in the Philippines. It's evident in South Korea, Japan, across the board. And I think we're, we're probably going to be talking about this for several years to come. And, of course, we have the re-election <laughs> next year in, in the United States, too. So. Yeah. Um, one last thing on this uh, MDT issue, which was that days after Pompeo's trip, um, we saw an intens- intensification of Chinese maritime militia activity near uh, Titu Island, um, Philippines' possession, um, mm-hmm. off the coast of Palawan. Um, reportedly, Chinese um, fishing vessels were blocking um, Philippine vessels from accessing waters near some of the um, the caves nearby. Um, and I think I think that's an interesting response uh, because, you know, as we know from work that's done by um, a range of good American scholars, the maritime militia is effectively an arm of state po- state policy uh, for China in the South China Sea under sort of a veneer of plausible deniability. Um, so do you think that China is going to continue to kind of test this new assurance now? Um, because I think, you know, that's the problem that some critics of this actually in the United States were, were um, pointing out, which is that it's fine and good to give the Philippines this assurance. And of course, China perceived it as well because Pompeo was very public with the way and in, in the way that it was done. And these kinds of assurances don't work without being public. Um, but the question is, is American credibility actually going to take a hit as China sort of continues to uh, do things in the South China Sea that are effectively not going to trigger an American red line, right? Uh, as long as they keep on using maritime militia vessels and we don't have a replay of something like the 2012 Scarborough Shoal incident, um, this this does turn into a tricky problem. So I'm wondering what your thoughts are on that. Yeah, I mean, I, I think you, you wrote a couple of pieces for us this week sort of highlighting at this big problem or challenge, right? Is Which is that if we, if we just, you know, broaden the conversation beyond just what the reassurances that the United States is providing to the Philippines or discrete developments in the South China Sea, effectively, the, the question is um, China's gray zone coercion in the South China Sea, where it has done a number of things which are below the level of strictly military to military escalation, 
right? And how the United States and other countries are going to confront that. And I don't think that the actions that the Trump administration has taken thus far amount to a strategic response with respect to this. I think it gets at it a little bit, but I don't think we have fundamental uh, answers around that. Um, and that applies to the Philippines too, right? You talked about these developments with respect to T2 Island and some of the Chinese activities there. The Chinese have been very good um, at sort of testing the Philippines resolve beyond the level of military to military escalation while also holding out benefits for Duterte, right? So Duterte is going to be attending the Belt and Road Summit next month. Um, the Philippine Foreign Secretary is off to China where they're expected to sign a number of agreements. And so I think Pompeo's trip was partly designed to get ahead of that. But it doesn't address the broader question, which is that a lot of U.S. policy is directed against China and this notion of U.S.-China strategic competition. But the reality is that even a lot of U.S. partners and U.S. allies um, are moving towards China in ways that are very worrying for the United States because they have questions about longstanding U.S. credibility. And I don't think we have a clear sense of that. If you were to ask a basic question, right, which we've done in this podcast before, where does the South China Sea rank? Uh, relative to U.S. security priorities in the Asia-Pacific. I would say, you know, North Korea is up there, China is up there. I'm not so sure if China were to take particular actions in the South China Sea that the United States would react in a very direct way uh, relative to where it would be on these other major security concerns. And I think countries in Southeast Asia have the same concern. Um, And we've seen the Trump administration take a number of actions to address that. But I don't think those are adequate to address the broader challenges that we're talking about and also China's gray zone strategy. Yeah, no, that's absolutely right. I mean, that was kind of what I was trying to get you to uh, talk about a little bit. And, you know, this is kind of what we saw, um, again, to go back to, I guess, the Shangri-La dialogue last year. This was what every, you know, every kind of uh, rules-based order supporting state representative um, Mm -hmm. emphasized that they rejected China's fait accompli. In the South China Sea, you know, the artificial islands and the Spratlys, the effective gray zone coercion uh, all throughout the Nine Dash Line region, including into Indonesia's exclusive economic zone, even though Indonesia is in a claimant. Um, but nobody had a theory of how you reverse that because you can't reverse it. That's the entire nature of a fait accompli, right? So mm-hmm. what you do is you continue to uh, support these, um, support the rules that you say you stand for. But my concern is, and you know, I I, I do share a little bit of sympathy on this um the ambiguity point with the MDT that that there may have been values and there may be now additional costs to American credibility if and when we do see another major incident between, um, you know, let's say a Philippine Navy vessel and Chinese maritime law enforcement, right? That's one rung above the fishermen to fishermen, maritime militia to fishermen interactions that we've been seeing um, at T2 Island. And I think uh, that's going to be something that I hope the administration has an answer for. Uh, it's not something that you can really, you know, play by ear as it happens. Yep, that that's true, and I I think we we should also you know give credit that's due to the administration for actually calling out some of these Chinese actions, right? I think one of the things that we've talked about before um, with respect to the South China Sea is that we've seen what is is effectively what people are worrying is a numbing approach to what China is doing in the South China Sea, where, you know, stories that were on page one of newspapers a few years ago, now they barely even get mentioned, whether it's, you know, Chinese sinking of individual vessels or obstructing energy exploration activities. So the fact that the United States is talking about this, uh, you know, Pompeo, you wrote a piece about the remarks that he's talked about with respect to the South China Sea and how China is obstructing Southeast Asian states' energy exploration activities. That's, that's an important point to raise. Yeah. But I think, 
you have to raise that within a context of, you know, to be fair, the Philippines is doing this in complicity with the Chinese, right? The Philippines is also looking at an oil and gas exploration deal under Duterte with the Chinese that, you know, the the Aquino administration would have been hesitant to do given the fact that China and the Philippines have had a very contentious relationship on the South China Sea. So the, Phil- the United States doesn't just have a China problem. It also has a problem with its allies and partners in how they're accommodating the Chinese, which I think is more complicated. Yep, that's right. And of course, the uh, issues that come from the American president and what he says about alliances in general, too. So, you know, um, we'll have to see if there's any follow up on that Bloomberg story recently that uh, all all allied partners would have to pay, you know, a 50 percent premium for uh, host nation (laughs) support. Doesn't apply to the Philippines, but it applies to some of the uh, other alliances in the region. Um, Anyways, let's uh, talk about the quad a little bit. Um, Mm -hmm. For listeners who may not be aware, um, the quad or the quadrilateral is sort of a shorthand to refer to a loose consultation between four countries, the United States, Japan, Australia, and India. Uh, Three of those are allies. Uh, Well, Japan and Australia are allies with the United States. Uh, But within that quad arrangement, there are also a range of trilaterals and a range of um, other activities going on. It was originally conceived up in 2007, a little bit prematurely. It was an initiative originally um, during Japanese Prime Minister Shinzo Abe's uh, non-consecutive first term in office when he was just in office for one year. Uh, He sort of saw it as a a natural arrangement of... um, four democracies that could come together in Asia and uh, talk a bit about the common challenge of a rising China, which was a very different threat at the time. Uh, if it, And, you know, I, I don't think all the countries even agreed that China was a threat in the way that Abe at least mm-hmm. saw it. Uh, but in 2017, the group reconvened in a very different strategic environment. This was just shortly before the United States acknowledged China as a great power competitor in the national uh, national security strategy released by the Trump administration. Um, and the Quad has been meeting on and off at a, uh, at a fairly low uh, bureaucratic level, um, and it's been misinterpreted as sort of the foundations of something like an alliance in Asia. It's, it's far from that, uh, especially with India's involvement. India is quite allergic to that A word. Um, but uh, the reason you know, Prashant and I were going to talk about the Quad is because, uh, I guess, last week, um, comments by uh, Admiral Phil Davidson, who's the uh, commander of Pacific uh, Indo-Pacific Command, I keep doing that, um, is, um, you know, the, he, he talked about how maritime coordination within the Quad was not really an area for rapid progress. And that was sort of um, garbled in a few headlines that implied that the Quad itself was going to be set aside and that it didn't have potential. Uh, but what uh, Admiral Davidson was really talking about was... Um, you know, naval exercises, naval coordination. Um, something that's come up in recent years is the quadrilateralization of the U.S., Japan, India, Malabar exercises. Those used to be a U.S.-India exercise. Japan was added in 2015, and Australia's participation in recent years has been a, a bit of a, a pressure point, uh, with uh, India being particularly um, cold on those prospects. Um, but Prashant, you know, looking uh, looking at what uh, Admiral Davidson said last week, and just looking at, I guess, you know, what the Quad's been up to since we last talked about it on the podcast. Um, what do you make of this grouping? Where is it going? Uh, are our expectations set too high, or should they be set lower? I, I think, it, as you correctly framed it there, I mean, it, the the nature of the trajectory of the Quad is such that we have these ongoing controversies that emerge um, every few months about, you know, either the Quad is declared prematurely dead 
or there are folks who claim that it's been given new life. But in reality, it's just really muddling somewhere in between, not really as far as uh, I think its proponents would like, which is regularization of exercises, holding of meetings without any questions being raised, um, but also like in, in a much greater way than I think its, its critics would have hoped, which is that this was something that would die entirely, um, and that one country or two countries would essentially say, we're not going to do this and it's going to be dispensed of. Um, in reality, it's just been muddling along, it hasn't really made much progress. But I do think, I mean, the, the, the fundamental point really about all these controversies, including the one with uh, Davidson, um, is the fact that really, I mean, U.S. policy if you look at the tra trajectory of it over the past few years, it really has evolved. I mean, the Quad was t talked about initially in its initial inception under the Bush administration as being a new arrangement with a lot of promise, you know, a four-country partnership, similar ideals, you know, military potential. But it's since evolved into just, you know, U.S. policy articulations of it. Are just, it's just one example of the sort of, you know, inclusive principle security network under the Obama administration. Now it's being called something slightly different under the Trump administration, but essentially the same. Um, you know, that is essentially where U.S. officials are like. And it, it's also, it's something that relates obviously partly to China. It's partly security focused, but it's also taken on a more economic, focus as well. There's conversations about infrastructure. And U.S. defense officials have been emphasizing that publicly as well as privately. But the perceptions of the Quad in the region haven't really moved on from where the Quad was when it was originally conceived. And so you have this gap between where the Quad is in reality and where perceptions are. And I think that is kind of the frustration point that we are at, including at folks at the Pentagon right now. Um, where they had to deal with this controversy, and I suspect that they will have to deal with many more to come. Yeah, no, I think um, I think you nailed it. Um, the Quad is made out to be something very exciting because it's these four countries that you know are naturally kind of seen as a balancing coalition to China, and despite what they say, a lot of I think together they are effectively exercising a kind of balancing behavior, but. Things are going to move quite slowly. Um, I wouldn't even count on seeing Australia come into Malabar, um, you know, within probably until the next administration, potentially, or a second Trump mm -hmm. term. Um, so I think, you know, to answer my own question, I guess I would I would set our expectations quite low. But I also wouldn't write off the quad as a kind of non-entity. I think the most interesting thing about the quad is actually the trilaterals contained within it. Um for India in particular, I think that's been important because uh, now you have sort of uh, India, Japan, Australia trilateralization uh, ongoing. Uh, India, Japan, U.S. trilaterals have come a long way, including with the Leaders Summit last December um, for the first time ever on the sidelines of the G20 meeting. So coordination is happening, and I think this is where you see the building blocks. And of course, um, what we've seen with the Quad, the Free and Open Indo-Pacific, uh, what you talked about earlier with the U.S. speaking out more openly against Chinese behavior in the region is that China, you know, China's behavior is the primary kind of catalyst of, of further progress within these kind of networks and organizations. So if we do see continued Chinese assertion uh, in the South China Sea, a, a broader Chinese presence in the Indian Ocean region, potentially heightened tensions again in the East China Sea, um, potentially even Chinese expansion into Oceania and the Southern Pacific. All of these things together, I think, are what are going to drive the quad to uh, to become more of a realization of the perceptions that currently exist around it. But right now, you're absolutely right that I think the perceptions are a little bit out in front of what this uh, grouping is actually up to. 
Yeah, and I, I do think, you know, it is useful to draw the distinction. Uh, you wrote a piece earlier this week, right, which essentially said, you know, there's a distinction between the holding of regular military exercises, which is one aspect of what the Quad uh, aspires to do. Um, but there's also this idea that this exists as a unilateral security agreement that has a variety of functions, economic functions, diplomatic functions, security functions. And we may well end up with a process where, um, you know, the, the intended objective for the, the fiercest proponents of the Quad, which is regularization of exercises, we may not see that very soon, but we may see developments in those other spheres that don't attract a lot of headlines. Um, but nonetheless help keep the grouping alive because you know the, the when you insert additional countries into any arrangement and ASEAN is a perfect uh, example of that with with 10 countries right you know it gets more complicated to get agreement and so you're absolutely right to point to the fact that you know we talk about this quadrilateral as, as a grouping of four but it really is a agglomeration of a series of bilateral relationships and a series of trilateral relationships right and each of these countries, depending on the year, depending on the time, will be domestically rebalancing, depending on elections, their own policies towards China, the United States, et cetera, et cetera. So, you know, it isn't really very useful to talk about, you know, particular countries being holdouts to the quad or the quad being dead or the quad being alive. It's it's actually a lot less sexier than uh, <laughs> the headlines may portray. Yeah, absolutely. All right. Um, well, Prashant, I think we'll leave it there for this week. Sounds good. All right. Uh, for our listeners, thanks for uh, listening to the podcast. If you uh, like what you heard and you want to keep up with future episodes, make sure you subscribe. And if you've been a subscriber for a while but you haven't yet left us a review, please go ahead and do that on either iTunes or Google Play. It really uh, helps get the word out about the show. And uh, thanks a lot for listening. And we'll be back next week with more.